Well, this morning we're going to continue on our uh, little series we've been doing. Uh, we've been looking at the time of our visitation in the context of, of, you know, what God is working on in various ways in the seasons in our lives, you know, to accomplish his purposes. And it's so vital that we learn to identify the season that we're in, that the season that, that God's moving and how he's moving and how he wants to work in a situation, um, you know, lest we get focused on the wrong thing in the season, as we've been looking at in Ecclesiastes, you know, for focusing on the wrong thing, we might find us ourselves fighting against God, you know, because we want something else to happen, but God is saying, no, this is what I want to take place. And uh, so we want to understand, Lord, what are you trying to do in the season I'm in? You know, fighting against God is kind of a good segue to the one I want to look at with you. I'm kind of randomly going and, you know, picking out different ones in the order of those uh, 14 comparisons in Ecclesiastes. In fact, I want to look at the very last one with you, if we could. Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 8, the second part of the verse, it says, there's a time of war and there's a time of peace. A time of war and a time of peace. And, you know, I think we can clearly understand from Scripture of how uh, we're called to be good soldiers of Jesus Christ. We're called to fight, you know, and to war uh, after the spiritual way that God would lead us and have us fight. And, of course, the Old Testament's full of stories of natural battles, right? They, they knew how to fight. Even the priests, you know, knew how to fight. Um, you know, you hear about that in some of the uh, stories of Judah and the Old Testament and, you know, the priests with Joash, you know, they, they had swords and were going to protect him as the, the young king. Uh, you know, and so it's, it's full of stories of war and battles against the enemy of Israel. And, uh, and, but for New Testament believers, our fight is in the spiritual realm, thankfully, right? We don't have to fight in the natural um, but we but we do realize we face a spiritual enemy. I actually like how the NIV puts this in, in 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 3. It says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. And that's something we want to keep close to our hearts, right? If if we're naturally minded, we kind of are inclined to the way the world does it. But on the contrary, they have divine power. Like the, uh, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. I like how, how that translation puts that, especially verse 5. Right? We're, we're here to demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and His ways. Sometimes that's our biggest battle. But Paul's clear, as believers, we live in this world and we will fight an enemy, but it is a spiritual enemy. Right? It's not the natural. Although sometimes the enemy is able to manifest himself through people. Uh, you know, and because they've opened doors in their lives 
for that to take place. But, but what is our response to be? We're not to view it with the natural mind as the world does, you know, and as, as it said here, we, we fight through God's spiritual weapons of faith. And those spiritual weapons will demolish the arguments and those things that set themselves up against the ways of God and take captive every thought. You know, Lord, let every thought in my mind that's not of you be taken captive and only let the ones that you ordain, you know, work and take place and flow in my mind and my heart. You know, that's what must be in order for us to fight our battles. It's, you know, if we have our own thought, it's like tying a hand behind our back or a foot and hopping around trying to fight our battles. We're not going to be very successful. But we get the victory when our thought, our intention, and our speech are flowing with heaven. When they're not, we set ourselves up for defeat. We see an example of that later on we're going to look at. But uh, So there's, there's a lot we could talk about with spiritual warfare. We're just going to key in on just really specific things because I'm hoping to get through more than one comparison today. Uh, so we're just going to limit it to a couple of concepts. But Paul says something else. I mean, he knew what it was like to fight, you know, spiritual battles. First Timothy 1.18, he says, This charge I, charge I commit unto thee, O son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before thee, before thee, that you might war a good warfare. War a good warfare. How does he do that? Verse 19, holding faith and a good conscience, which some having put away concerning faith, they made shipwreck. And so Paul, again, is making it clear there's spiritual battles that we're to, to fight and wars that believers are to be involved in, we're to fight. But he makes this statement, I think it's very important. We're to war a good warfare, not our own warfare, not just warfare, but a good warfare. You know, if there's a good warfare, there's a bad warfare. And, and so we want to focus on, Lord, what is the good warfare? And Paul brings out as based on something very specific. He says, we fight that good warfare holding faith. Holding the faith. Now, we can think of examples, you know, like Gideon, where God spoke to him to take a very reduced number of soldiers Right? It went from thousands down to 300 and a very reduced to fight a vast army of the Midianites. But he was warring a good warfare, wasn't he? And how can we declare that? It's because God had directed him, divinely spoke to his heart. This is how you fight. This is the plan of heaven for you to get victory over the Midianites. And you know, when he had that, he couldn't really lose, right? Especially when you read the story and you see how God brought the victory. It had very little to do with, with Gideon and his 300 men because, right, they blew the trumpet and they smashed the, the vessels and the lamps were shown and the Midianites were terrified. And they basically started fighting against each other and they routed each other and they ran away and a victory was obtained. But that victory came as he held his faith. He held on to the direction of heaven and what God was saying to him to, and how to fight. 
You know, as it says in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the rhema word of God, not just the logos. And I think it's it's in this situation that we it's important to make that distinction, right? There's there's the logos. There's many thousands of verses, you know, of the logos. One part I remembered how many it were. I usually have to look in one of Pastor Paul Karam's book because he always brings out how many verses there are in the Bible. And then he asked the question, and how do you know which of the, I think it's something like 22,000 verses or whatever. How do you know which one applies to your situation? Well, we, we only know by the Spirit of God, the rhema, the quickened word. Lord, what do I do in this situation? We need faith from heaven as a substance in our hearts to lead us in those battles. That's how we war a good warfare. Now, how do we war a wrong or a bad warfare? I think we have a good contrast in that of someone who warred a bad warfare. Um, but the sad thing is, is he was one of the most godly and promising kings other than King David. In fact, I mean, he really had very little that you could even point out of what he did wrong or anything. You know, I'm talking about Josiah. I mean, he cleansed the land like no other before him. Uh, you know, he, he even cleansed the Mount of Corruption. That's a little side note in that, in the history of Israel is, you know, the Mount of Corruption was actually established by Solomon. And on the Mount of Olives, he made a place of worship to all of the gods of the strange woman he, he married. And none of the other kings before him, I don't know why they didn't cleanse that or what was involved, but Josiah cleansed that. He had the boldness and the faith to cleanse the land utterly from all idolatry, all high places. Some kings cleansed certain things, but not the high places. He got rid of it all. You know, he, he established the worship of God again. He led the nation into revival and they celebrated the holy days and had a Passover not seen since the days, and not, not just like David, but of Samuel. And so he led the nation into wonderful things. But at the end of his life, he did not war a good warfare, right? And so it's kind of a, a, a sad note to end on. But he picked up arms against a foe who in his natural understanding, he thought, well, hey, we should fight against uh, the Egyptians, they're our enemy, right? They represent the world. Pharaoh represents the king of this earth. And so, you know, Pharaoh was coming up to fight, not against him, but against another foe. But it says, Josiah went out to fight against him uh, and he didn't war a good warfare and he lost because of that. And of course, Pharaoh actually told him, the Lord himself told me to go and fight this fight. Who are you to fight against the Lord? But he didn't, didn't respond to that. You know, he didn't follow that. And he didn't have faith to war good warfare. And so, you know, we want to take heed to that lesson from Josiah's life. Of course, we also want to fight with the right weapons, right? We want to fight with the weapons that God has given us, and there's the different weapons of faith that we can look about in Ephesians 6 that Paul brings out. But, but you know, Jesus warned us that in the last days, deception would abound. 
Um, and why deception is so powerful is that it can take many forms and it can even resemble the truth. Sometimes it can look more like the truth than even sometimes the truth does because you just don't know and it looks so appealing. And that's why the Apostle Paul warned us about what is false and being propagated by those who are false. He, he said in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, he said, No marvel, for Satan himself is transformed even into an angel of light. And so, you know, I think about the days we're coming into, and if we have not learned to move beyond just operating in principle, well, the Bible says this is a good thing, so I guess I'll do this. It's a good thing. But we have to move beyond to that into the rhema word of, you know, the Lord has quickened this to me. This is what I need to do in this situation. We have to get into that because deception is going to be so strong. And so we have to fight with the weapon, the weapons of faith. You know, the, we're not to fight with the, the natural weapons, which include the natural mind, but we're to use the weapons that Paul talks about of truth, of righteousness, of peace, and above all, he says, take up the shield of faith. That's in Ephesians 6. And they will enable us to war a good warfare. And so there is a time to fight, and we want to fight a good fight, a good warfare according to God's ways. But then there's a time of peace. Right? There's a time of rest. And you know, not every situation is a spiritual battle or, or, uh, or is to be on our part anyway. Right? Sometimes God wants to fight for us, and he says, just be at peace. Be at rest. I'll take care of it. You know, we could again consider the situation of Moses leading Israel across the, the Red Sea or through the Red Sea. And in Exodus 14, 4, it said, in 14 and verse 14, it says, the Lord will fight for you, not to pick up your arms and fight in the name of the Lord. He says, the Lord is going to fight for you. What are you to do? Hold your peace. Hold your peace. And so there's a season when we have to pick up our weapons and we need to fight and we need to war good warfare. And there's other seasons where we have to hold on to the peace of God and that is our victory. And we read this those verses earlier, but I, I think we're going to find out several contrasts in Ecclesiastes flow with that, uh, that example. Um, you know, as I said previously, not every situation is one where we have to fight against it, but there's some where God wants to fight for us. Another situation that closely resembles this is in the time of Jehoshaphat. And they were facing the combined forces of Moab and Ammon. And that was a very daunting you know, proposition for nations to join up together and to fight against Judah. And they were facing that. Uh, you know, Assyria was also gathering against the nations. And so it, it was fear on every side of, you know, they didn't really have a lot of allies. They had a lot of enemies. So a very daunting situation, but God was with them. And, and it, this was to be a different kind of battle that you can read about in 2 Chronicles 20. In verse 17, 2 Chronicles 20, 17, it says, you shall not need to fight in this battle. I, I like it when the Lord says that. <laughs> You're not going to need to fight. I'm going to fight for you. 
Praise God. But he says, set yourselves, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord. O Judah and Jerusalem, fear not, don't be dismayed. Tomorrow, just go out, and the Lord is going to be with you, and he's going to fight the battles. And, of course, what's unique about this victory is they didn't fight. As the Lord said, uh, they just sang praises. They just rejoiced in God. In fact, it says, Jehoshaphat, he appointed singers to go before the army, and they were to praise the Lord and the beauty of his holiness. That is what brought victory. And I love what it says next. Um, it says this in, in some translations. I'm reading this in the ISV. In 2 Chronicles 20, verse 22, it says, it says, the Lord ambushed the Ammonites and the Moabites. The Lord ambushed them. Ooh, wouldn't you like that for your spiritual enemies? You know, we're praying for principalities and powers to be brought down and, you know, enemies that oppose us and so forth. Maybe the Lord might say, just praise me. Lift up your voice and rejoice and be thankful. And then I will ambush them and take care of them. And so there's times that we need to learn to come into rest and to fight in a different way, you know, to fight by not fighting, by letting God do it and us resting in his word, in his promises, and in his praise. The Lord of hosts came on the scene and he fought for Israel. So there is a time to fight and there's a time to rest in his peace. And he still helps us to win the battle. There's much more you could say about the peace of God and, and so forth, but we'll just consider those two things because I want to get to another point. And this is the, the fifth one we're considering. And it's in Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 5. Uh, this one kind of builds off the previous one, especially when we consider our example of in Jehoshaphat, because it says, uh, it says there is a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. Now, of all the characters in Scripture, you can see how Jehoshaphat, this one really applies to him. Right? There's, there's a time to embrace a time to be joined together with someone, but yet we also recognize there's a time and a season we must refrain from embracing, which means a separation. And, of course, when we consider Jehoshaphat, he also is one of the most godly examples of a king in Judah. Uh, he was instrumental in cleansing the land to a great degree, not quite to the degree of Josiah, but he still did it to a, a very great degree. And he renewed the worship of God in the temple, and he sent out traveling teachers to teach the people the, the law of the Lord, and that really solidified them to respond to God and follow him. And he strengthened the nation to fight and to stand against many other nations. I mean, under Jehoshaphat, they had, they had to stand uh, against the nations opposing them. But when we think about his life, it's hard not to look at that very big flaw that he had. And it was a big one that almost negated all the good that he did. It very nearly did negate all the good that he had done in, in his life, in his legacy. And that is because he joined himself to the house of Ahab. Right? And the story goes that Ahab invited Jehoshaphat to participate in fighting the enemies of Israel. And that seemed, you know, in your natural mind, it's like, well, hey, my 
My cousin is inviting me to, to war against the enemy of the Lord. What's wrong with that? You know, and so th this is, again, is, is a situation where we have to be so careful to operate solely on principle. And we have to hear what God is saying about the situation. And, I, and so well, perhaps Jehoshaphat was, was looking at this and saying, well, hey, this, this could be an opportunity for the tribes to be united again and to become one nation under God. You know, there was a lot of natural possibilities and thought process that you could, you could say could happen with that. But you know, the opposite took place. It brought destruction upon Judah. You know, he was overlooking what he was joining himself to with Ahab and his family. It was, in fact, it wasn't just Ahab, right? It was Jezebel. And she was the daughter of the king of Sidon, one of the most wicked nations that ever existed. You know, and she brought in the worship of Baal and, and so forth and, you know, opened open the door to evil like Israel had never seen in their existence. And so his biggest mistake is he, he thought it was his duty as king to embrace the northern tribes and, and the king there. And he had that commendable goal of unity. But in trying to do so, he said to the most wicked king to ever rule over Israel, you are my bone and my flesh. You know, to us today, afterwards, we see that and like, how can you even say that? Because we saw the outcome, but he didn't see that at times because he was looking with a natural mind or not warring the warfare with faith, but instead with principle. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 33, he said, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Another translation puts it this way. He said, bad friends will destroy you. And so the concept here is that there is a season and a time that God wants us to understand that we should refrain from embracing. We're going to look at the negative before the positive. Uh, you know, and, and we can wonder why and how embracing could have such a negative effect because we're talking about the spiritual life of believers, the spiritual realm. But I think there's there's a twofold aspect to that. Firstly, it's bad fruit, right? Jehoshaphat should have looked at the fruit of the life and the reign and the kingdom of Ahab and how the nation was turning to idolatry and he should have seen that fruit might affect my fruit and the fruit of Judah. You know, and joining to them affected their fruit. And so, you know, First off, we have to say like Jesus, you know, examine the fruit of someone, you know, and if the fruit is not good, we want to be very wary of that because some other people's fruit can affect our fruit if they were joined in a way that God is not ordaining. But also, I think we can understand from Ahab is here, he's an example of someone who opened himself to another spirit, literally through his wife. You know, he opened himself to another spirit. And for us, there will be times in our lives today and especially in the days to come where those we have walked with in the past, you know, can have opened themselves to another spirit, whether it's through iniquity 
or rebellion or jealousy or deception. And we must be so careful to ask the Lord, is this a time to embrace or is it a time to cease from embracing so that my spirit is not affected by what they have opened themselves to? And so we must have that discernment to know when to embrace and when to refrain from embracing. Because if we do it in our own wisdom or based on our own emotions or, you know, thought process, and we don't check it with heaven or our spiritual covering, we can open the door to much destruction. We have to appeal to to the one whose thoughts and perspective is so much higher than ours. And so there's a time to refrain from embracing, but then there's times to embrace. And there's much we could consider with that, but, but you know, of course we should embrace those who are of the same vision, those who are walking on the pathway of righteousness. I mean, that goes without question. But you know, sometimes with the, the context of embracing, sometimes we see people who are struggling and perhaps we've had long patience with them and we feel our patience wearing thin. You know, they haven't heeded our warnings. You know, they're ignoring, you know, instruction and, and so forth. And in our natural minds, it can be easy to say, well, they don't want to listen to me, so I'm going to wash my hands of them. But, you know, the Apostle Paul shows us what the attitude of a servant of God should be. 2 Timothy 2.24 And the servant of the Lord must not strive. And striving really means doing things in our own strength, in our own ability, in our own wisdom. That will always cause us to strive. But instead, we're to be gentle, apt to teach or ready to teach when they can receive it, patient, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. They are their biggest problem until they get out of the way. They're probably not going to find what they need. But we, we continue in that if God by chance, peradventure, by chance, will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. You know, our, our position of fulfilling the law through loving God and loving our neighbor Uh, In doing so, there's times when our neighbor will be struggling and they struggle for a long time. You know, sometimes they walk in a way that's in opposite of the ways of righteousness. And there's a certain sense that we as the servants of God have to be sensitive to continuing in meekness, in patience, forbearance. If perhaps God would lead them back and bring them to the acknowledging of the truth, you know, and so we, we continue. We encourage, continue to encourage, to exhort, to pray, and to wait till the time of a turning comes. You know, I think that there's one story, I'll close with this aspect. There's one story in particular in Scripture, I think, kind of shows both sides of this, this uh, contrast of there's a time not to embrace and there's a time to embrace. And that's the story of the prodigal son. Right? The first part of that story, it's a son who has a give me spirit. He says, Father, give me. It's about me. 
my life is about me and what I want to do and what I want to obtain and how I want to feel fulfilled and so forth. The father knew. I think he probably was patient for a long time with his son to try and instruct him. But it's at one point he realized he had to let go and let him walk in his own way. And of course, I, that, I don't think he ceased praying for him and crying out to God for him. I think that was probably instrumental in the concept of this story. But there came a time of separation, of ceasing to embrace, and he had to let him go. But as a father quite often does, he continued and he didn't let go in prayer and in hope. Till one day his son came to the end of himself. And Luke 15, 18, here the son, as he comes to his senses, he says, I'm going to arise and go to my father. And I am to say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but make me like one of your servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But when he was a long way off down the road, you can kind of picture it, right? It's like the father, I don't, I don't know if he had a rocking chair, but I can just kind of picture him in the rocking chair, just kind of sitting there praying. And then down the road, he sees a form of someone and he knows God's changed it. God's done something. And he sees his son and he knows God has done this. And he runs to his son and he had compassion and he fell on his neck and he kissed him. And he brought him to that place of restoration. You know, the best thing the father could have done in that situation was to let him go because he needed to come to the end of himself. And when he let that happen, he was ready to embrace him again. You know, that's the heart of a true father. He was ready to embrace him and lead him in that way of repentance. The younger brother had a little more trouble, right? I mean, he had been faithful but he, you know, he had the, the heart of, of a young man, but not quite of a father. The father was ready. He re the father recognized the, the true work, work of repentance and humility of heart. The younger brother just remembered the rebellion and, and the stubbornness and you know, going his own way. And the father had to encourage him to see it from his perspective, from a father's perspective. He knew it was a time to embrace because it was a time of restoration. And I think there's times, especially in the coming days, when people are going to walk into church with lives absolutely devastated by sin. And we're going to say, Lord, what are you going to do with this? But he can do a whole lot when there's a heart that's ready to be restored. But God is looking for those with hearts of fathers and mothers in Israel who can embrace and walk with them and lead them to restoration, to strength, and to victory. And so God wants us to understand the times and the seasons in which he is working in our lives. And sometimes we're in multiple seasons where he's doing multiple things at the same time. But, but you know, there's a time when he's calling us to war, a good warfare, and to fight with his weapons, the main one being his faith, that we're going out with the rhema word of God, knowing that this is what he's spoken to us to do in this season with his battle plan. There's other times we just need to hold our peace and say, Lord, would you fight for us? Would you bring a turning? Would you bring the victory? Because you're just speaking to me, stay quiet. We already looked at that one too. Hold our peace. Well, if that's the case, 
then the Lord of hosts is going to fight for us. And we, we just need to hold our peace and rest in him. And there's times we, embra- we are to embrace and other times to refrain from embracing for our own safety and for the safety of the flock as well, right? Because we are not ignorant of the devices of the enemy, lest he get an advantage over us, as it says in 2 Corinthians 2. And so we refrain from embracing until the time comes for restoration. And I believe we're going to see the, t- the greatest time of restoration the world has ever known, where God is going to bring people into the church and they're going to need fathers and mothers to, to embrace them and walk with them and disciple them. But we will need to be those who have learned to recognize God, the time of God's visitation in that hour of what he wants to do in each season of our lives and in the lives of others. And that will allow him to work. Lord, we thank you. Lord, thank you that you're you're a God of the many and the multitude of seasons. And Lord, we're just crying out to you, Lord, even in these seasons we've looked at. Lord, would you make us those who can recognize Lord, the time to fight. Lord, the time to grab a hold of of your shield of faith and to fight and war a good warfare, Lord. And Lord, that you would give us discernment to know when it's time to hold our peace and just, Lord, wait upon you and rest in you and not to strive. Oh God, teach us your ways, Lord. Even, Lord, that time of when to embrace and when not to embrace. Oh God, help us to walk, Lord, in your fear, as even as, Lord, you were quickening this morning. Lord, unite our heart to fear your name, that we would walk in the way that you are doing it in every season we ask. And we thank you and we bless you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.